This morning I'll be reading Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, 13 and 14, and chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were, in the, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence throughout, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of the flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The, the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Before we get started, I want to say that it's not lost on me that the Sunday that I'm preaching Noah and the flood, that Tom and Daniel, and Brian are all conveniently out of town. <clears throat> My assumption is it's trial by fire or something like that, but we're just going to press on ahead. In 1970, C.S. Lewis published a book titled God in the Dock. In that book, he's making an observation about how culture has shifted in the way that we uh, approach or think about God. He says this, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. What do you think? Is Lewis right in his assessment of culture there? Today, as we look at, the, uh, at God's judgment in the flood, we're going to have an opportunity to see if we think God is right in the way he goes about judgment. I think when we approach stories like this, sometimes we think maybe we would do a better job than God would. And so as we do this, my hope is as we meditate on it, we will watch closely to see what God is doing and why God is doing what he's doing. I think if we have a right understanding of these things, we'll conclude that God is 
perfect and sovereign, the good judge over his creation. And we're going to take the story in three acts. It's one story, really only half of the story of Noah. And we're going to take it in three phases. First, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, we're going to see man's spiraling descent into sin. Next, in chapter 6, verse 8, all the way to 7.10, we're going to see the unique faithfulness of Noah. And then last, in chapter 7, verses 11 to 24, we're going to see God's judgment and mercy. So first, act one, man's spiraling descent into sin. After the genealogy in chapter 5, chapter 6 returns to narrative. And it opens with what is uh, often referred to as one of the most confusing passages in Genesis. One commentator says, Unquestionably, 6, 1 to 4 is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. Every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. Now, I recognize there are a few different interpretations to this, uh, who the sons of God are, who the daughters of men are, who the Nephilim are. If your hope is that I'm going to answer every question today, you're going to be disappointed. That's not my goal. Um, my, I would submit, I think the straightforward reading would be that the sons of God are, are probably rulers of the day in some sort of authority positions, and that their sin was taking wives, multiple wives of the common women, that would be the daughters of men, and the Nephilim are, are just their offspring, mighty warriors that would have been trained up in royal households. I recognize there are other varying viewpoints on this, but the emphasis is not on uh, the specifics of who they are. That, that's not what Moses is trying to emphasize. That's clear from the fact that he doesn't describe them very much. Rather, the emphasis and the uniformity as to what this means is it's a sinful nature of these relationships. Uh, Moses' concern is not who, but what. And we see their sin in two parts. First, we see their actions, and we see their affections. In their actions, Moses is emphasizing the continuing descent of man into sinful behavior. Whoever they were, they were going against God's uh, predetermined plan for what marriage should be. By taking multiple wives, they are progressing the sin of Cain's son, Lamech. So Lamech had two wives, and now we see that they're continuing to get more and more wives. So they're continuing to descend into sinfulness. And it goes directly against God's command in Genesis 2 that marriage is for one man and one woman who will become one flesh. It's clear from God's response in verse 5, these relationships were sinful. But we also can see this in verse 2. Look at the language there. It says, The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Do you remember where we've seen that language already? Back in Genesis 3, Eve saw and took. It's the same language. What, what Moses is teaching us there is that the same sin of Adam and Eve is still present in the lives of Noah's day. It's still happening. It's still active. God has set boundaries on the way that man ought to behave. He's given specific guidelines in how we live, and he's done so because he's promoting human flourishing. And yet, men forsake these boundaries, they live as they please, and they disregard God. In response to their sin and rebellion, God gives the consequence. He says his spirit will not abide in man forever. God will remove his life-sustaining breath from them. This is the breath of God that he had breathed into Adam in Genesis 2 to give him life, and now he is going to be removing it. I want to be clear, this isn't God arbitrarily killing innocent people. This is the justifiable removing of of the gift of life as a judgment on man's wickedness. 
God's judgment is never arbitrary. We're going to hit that a lot more later on. Jesus gives us an illustration of if your eye is causing you to sin, that you would tear it out and you would throw it away so that the rest of your body is not destroyed. We, we have the same idea, right? If I have a disease in my arm that's spreading, I know that I have to remove that disease even if it means I might need to cut off my arm. And that's, that's to protect the rest of the health of my body. That's what God is doing here. He's, he is cutting off the sinfulness of man in order to protect human life. And just as God speaks to the actions of these men, he also speaks to their affections. In verses 5 and 6, we see the increasing sin. The Lord sees man's wickedness is great in the earth and that every intention of his heart is only evil continually. For Cain, sin was crouching at the door. Now, sin has been welcomed in and made the master of the house. This is... Sorry, Jesus speaks to the same concept of this in Matthew 7. He says that a bad tree bears bad fruit. So there's, there's a root problem. It, it's demonstrated in the actions, but it's also the affections that are leading to this. And just as God, uh, sorry, but why, why does this matter for us today? We, we can read this and think, yeah, you know, those people were bad. They had some pretty great sins. But we aren't like that. You know, our, our modern culture, we, we sort of cleaned it up a little bit. We, we at least are, are much better at acting moral. You know, every generation, there's a, a, a Hitler, a Pol Pot, a, a Putin. And, and I think we can look at those guys and say, of course, there's always going to be one or two. But we're nothing like those guys. Those, those are menaces, they're terrors, but we're not like them. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're really not so unlike those people. When somebody speaks ill of you or of people you love, doesn't hatred just well up inside of you? You just think, man, I wish I could stop that guy. I think we all have this this hint within us that we know, given free reign, we're no better than they are. And Jesus says that our anger against men is no different than committing murder. That is, as we are angry, if we hate others, we have broken that commandment. This is the clear message from Scripture right here in Genesis and all through the entire Bible. And it should be obvious that uh, all of us really are tempted to feel this at times, no matter how much we clean up our lives. And and to be honest, I, I think we do. I think we do a good job of cleaning up our lives. But as much as we sterilize ourselves outwardly, inwardly our hearts are wicked. Our actions may look good, but our affections often don't. And that's why Jesus had to come. Jesus is the only one in all of history who never gave in to any of these sinful desires. Jesus lived a sinless life, the only sinless life in history. And then he died on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. When we come to him, we use language and we say that we're born again. That means as we look to God and as we confess that our hearts are wicked, they're in rebellion against God, that he brings us into a right standing before him. God changes both our affections and our actions. He gives us a new heart. That's why in Hebrews 11, we read of all these Old Testament saints, and it says that they were justified by faith. They were saved by their faith. Long before Jesus was born on the earth, there was still a need for faith in God and in his faithfulness. If you have not understood faith, if you've not understood God in this way, I hope today that we consider the weight of that message. 
we didn't sing this hymn today, but there's a hymn that says, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that leads us right into the second act. So we've seen the spiraling descent of man into sin, and now we get a glimmer of hope in the unique faithfulness of Noah. We're gonna see this in 6, 8 to seven ten. When all hope seems lost, Moses reintroduces a man that we met right at the end of chapter five. Now, if you recall, when he's born, his father hopes that Noah is the one through whom will come rest and deliverance. That's what Noah's name means. It means rest. And of course, in a sense, he was right. Noah will be the one through whom deliverance and rescue are going to come. Now, we're gonna see his unique faithfulness in two ways. First, he's uniquely chosen by God. There's three different parts to this. First, in verse eight, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase is only used once elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it's in Exodus 33, referring to Moses. God is speaking to Moses and says, you have found favor in my sight. And it's significant to notice here that God says this of Noah before Noah has done anything. Noah hasn't earned this favor. He didn't do anything to be favored. We're gonna hit that a lot more later. But it's good to get an idea that this is, this is why one of the ways in which Noah is unique. Second, in verse 9, we see that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. That phrase, righteous and blameless, demonstrates that Noah has a, a unique godliness. It doesn't communicate sinlessness. It's not saying that he has no sin, but it is saying that he has a unique commitment and a desire to follow God's commands. And of course, the, the language of walking with God points us back to Enoch in chapter five, the man who walked with God and as a result was taken up into fellowship with the Father. The third, and maybe the most particular one here, is that God speaks to Noah. God reveals to Noah that he and his family are the ones who will be saved from the coming judgment. God is showing his mercy to Noah in delivering him from judgment, and he warns him that he has determined to destroy all flesh and the earth with a flood, so that everything that is on the earth shall die. Everything. Let that sink in and hit you for a second. I think most of us are at least in some degree familiar with the story of Noah and the flood. But think about the scale of judgment that God is about to bring. God is warning Noah and Noah's the only one on earth who will listen to the warning. And even as he gives Noah this warning, he also gives him reason for hope. Make yourself an ark. There's going to be a flood. It's going to destroy all life on earth. Except for you, if you build this ark, you and your family will be safe. Now, I, I want to take a sidestep and consider how prevalent these sorts of stories are in ancient history. There are stories of floods uh, all throughout the ancient world. You can go to uh, the Aztecs, the Greeks, you can go to China, to the Aborigines, you can go all over the world and find these sort of flood stories. And I think that the Bible presents a unique, uh, a, a unique take on the flood that I think is the correct view but it is important to recognize that there are other stories that are a lot like the flood story we have. So I'll give you one example, the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is from the Mesopotamian area, right near where Noah would have been. A story says that Gilgamesh uh, sought to be immortal. 
he found a guy named Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim had uh, saved his family and some animals from a flood by building a boat. There's an obvious parallel there to the story of Noah and that man's story. If you remember, back in March, Tom was preaching at the start of Genesis on creation, and we made the same note there. It doesn't matter what the background was, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, everybody has a version of how the world was created. In a similar way, there's a very common thread of a flood. The differences, or at least one of the differences in those flood narratives, it's always petty gods that are, that are fighting with one another and they're jostling to try and win mankind's affection to their side. It honestly sounds a lot like high school politicking and trying to get a, a popularity contest. Now, I, I reject the historicity of those stories. I don't think they present a true narrative, but I do think it matters that they exist. If, uh, if you're here and, and you have thought, okay, maybe this flood is just a myth that's in the Bible, just like it's a myth in every other world, I, I would think, I would make you want to think, is it not significant that these exist all over the world from ancient history? The Bible presents a flood that is worldwide in its scale. Is it not significant that people all around the world have memory of this flood? Even if you don't believe that the Bible's narrative is true, does it not at least make you think or give you some degree of desire to know maybe this was true? And second, I think these other flood stories really do a lot to point to the greatness of the God of the Bible. The other stories have fearful gods, but the Bible presents God as sovereignly ruling over both humanity and the flood itself. He gives specific dimensions for the ark. He gives a set period of time for Noah to build the ark. He gives a set period of time for the water to rise, for water to prevail over the earth, and then he brings Noah and the animals and his family off the boat. At no point is God out of control. God is sovereign over every single phase of the story. This is why these other stories don't make me concerned about my faith in the God of the Bible. Those stories are, are something that we could come up with, anybody in the room could write. And yet the God of the Bible presents a story that is so specific and so detailed that it must come from his hand. All right, so that was a sidestep, back to the story. Noah is uniquely chosen by God, but he also has a unique faith in God. Unlike Cain, who hears the warning of God, ignores it, and kills his brother, Noah, when he hears the warning of God, he listens. He trusts, he responds in faith. In verses 13 to 21, God is speaking to Noah. He's giving him this very clear command of what to do, what to build, why he needs to build it, how he needs to go about the process. And if you notice, Noah never speaks back to God. He doesn't respond. All we get is in verse 22, affirmation of Noah's faith. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Imagine Noah's situation here. God has just told him a flood is coming and he needs to build a giant boat, even though he has no apparent need for a boat. He's never seen rain to this point in the Bible. We've never seen a boat at this point in the Bible. In fact, it's not till Genesis 10 that his descendants will eventually spread out and go to the coastlands. But Noah hears the command of God and he trusts. And consider even just the amount of labor that would have been needed to build a boat this big. God said to get a very specific kind of tree. So Noah has to go and cut these trees down, bring them to an area big enough to actually build the boat, 
and then maybe his labor forces himself, and at most, his three sons. He has a huge scale project in front of him. And all that we read of what he did is that he did it. The details of how he got the job done aren't what seem to be important here. Instead, what's emphasized is his total faith in the word of God. God commanded, Noah obeyed. Unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Cain, unlike everybody else in the world around Noah at the time, Noah obeyed God's word. And I don't think we're supposed to believe that Noah is some sort of master shipbuilder. I actually think that we can sort of parallel this to a story from Exodus 31. So there they're building the tabernacle and very similar to the story of Noah, God gives very specific commands for how the tabernacle is to be built. What materials to use, uh, down to the colors of the fabric to be hung. And then he calls on two people, Bezalel and Aholiab, to build the temple or to build the tabernacle. I don't think we're supposed to believe that these two guys are building wizards. I think, rather, what we see there is that God, it says in Exodus 31, that they are filled with the Spirit and then given the ability. They aren't supposed to come with their own skill set, yet rather, God calls them and equips them to do the work that he has called them to do. I think it's very much the same thing that's happening with Noah. Noah believes God and then God empowers Noah to do the work. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian philosopher of the 20th century, points to the the faith of Noah in building the ark. He says this, quote, Notice again, just as with Abel in Hebrews 11.4 and Abraham in Romans 4.3, faith is related to a propositional promise from God. Noah could not yet see the flood, but he had a propositional statement that judgment was to come, And he was told in a most propositional statement the dimensions of the boat he was to build. And he was asked to build a boat somewhere with no adequate water in sight. This was his act of faith, believing a propositional promise of God. All right, what does that mean? A propositional promise is just an if-then statement. God has said he would bring a flood. He told Noah to build a boat to be delivered from the flood. And Noah's faith is proven in believing those promises. This is what faith is. It's believing God. Now I want to pause for a second and and think of a couple of ways that we can apply that. First, does this challenge your understanding of faith? Notice that Noah isn't patted on the back for any of the work he does. The magnitude, the scale of the works we do are not what matters to God. What matters is our trust in him, our dependence on him, our faith in him. So if you're here and you're you're growing weary in confidence, I would hope that Noah's faith encourages you to press on. If you're tempted to feel like maybe your work is meaningless or small, again, it's not the scale that matters, it's the faithfulness. God has called you to be faithful in whatever it is he has called you to do. We are not the hero of the story. Noah is not the hero of the story. God is the hero. And second, are there areas of your life where maybe you need to be called to faith? Are there challenges in your life that you're facing that you don't think you'll be able to overcome? Are there financial struggles? God has said he will provide for you more than he provides for the birds and the lilies. Are you feeling worn down by the busyness of life? God has said, come to me and I will give you rest. Life is full of challenges and heartaches, but we can cling to the promise of God that we never face them alone. 
Again, Jesus has said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we can take heart. All right, we've seen the spiraling descent into sin. We've seen a glimmer of hope in the faithfulness of Noah. And now we get to see what God does. In chapter 7, verses 11 to 24, we'll see the judgment and the mercy of God. First, the judgment begins in verse 11. There we read, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. When we think of the flood, I think we normally think it just rained really, really hard for 40 days, but we have water from above and below happening here. The water levels rise for 40 days. Now, none of the language here is meaningless. Every single phrase that is written down is important to understanding what's happening here. What we're seeing is God's judgment on the earth returning it to a state like it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What God is doing is an act of uncreation. He's returning the world to a state that is uninhabitable and chaotic. Now, next week we will see the recreation, but now we just have the uncreation. This is the judgment of God. I think it's worth saying, this is where the story isn't just a kid's story. I didn't grow up going to church every week, but I knew the story of Noah and the flood. I, I always thought of it like a, a petting zoo on the water. You see every picture is all the animals and all the Noah and his family. They're all big smiles while they're on the boat and there's a sun is out and shining. I mean, we have kids' toys of these things where you can put the animals on the boat. But think about what's happening here. In the span of just a few days of rain and flood, all life on earth is brought to an end. All life. Think about that. Noah preached for 120 years that judgment was coming because of mankind's sin, and not a single person listened. In Matthew 24, Jesus says that in the days of Noah, all those around him were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. What's he saying? God's judgment on every other person on earth, maybe millions of people, was to be swept away by the floodwaters. Think about the bubonic plague. So in Europe, uh, it's estimated that anywhere between 30 and 60% of the population was lost in the span of five years. Those stats are hard for us to imagine, and they pale in comparison to the judgment that we see in the flood. In the span of a few days, all life outside of the ark is ended. Now, I can feel an immediate objection that rises up when we read things like this. Maybe you hear this and you think, that seems like a really, really harsh thing for God to do. How could it be that their sin was so great that it deserved this sort of punishment? Right off the top of my head comes to mind Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, where we read that the Lord is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That doesn't sound like God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you bristle at the thought that God would do something like this? That I think justice is something that we have a really hard time believing in until we're on the receiving end of the offense. If we are driving in traffic and the guy behind us we can see flying up and weaving in and out of traffic and you're, you're concerned for your safety and the safety of the people around you, 
we kind of smile when we see the blue lights come on up ahead. I think we all have a desire for justice, but we don't necessarily know how we want it meted out. Consider that God waited 120 years and no one repented. After all that time, they were just as much haters of God as they were at the start. 2 Peter 2.5 says that throughout the whole period, Noah was preaching righteousness. This is God's patience on display in delaying the judgment while Noah was building the ark. And what we know about God's character from numerous other places in Scripture is that when people do repent, when they do turn away from their sin, that God will relent from bringing that justice. This is the story of Israel over and over again. This is the story of all of those who have come to faith in Christ. God does relent from bringing judgment when we turn and worship him. That's why we have a second half to that verse in Numbers 14. The rest of the verse says that God will by no means clear the guilty. This is what we mean when we talk about the justice of God. God is perfect in all of his ways, in all of his judgments, and when he brings the floodwaters and he wipes out mankind except for Noah and his family, he's just in doing so. Now, I admit this is hard for us to hear, probably even harder for us to believe, but we need to consider the weight of our sin against a perfect, holy God. I think this should be heard just as much of a warning to us as it was to Noah. Apart from our faith in Christ, our fate is the same of those who are outside of the ark. My prayer throughout preparing for this has been that those who do not know Christ would turn away from the judgment to come. They would turn from their sin and cling to Christ with complete and total trust. And what we do see judgment of God on clear display, we also see a really beautiful display of God's mercy. This actually comes first back in chapter 6, verse 8. That's where we saw that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor could easily have been translated as grace or acceptance. The idea that's communicated is that God's favor is his unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness. We find in verse 9 that he was righteous and blameless, And based on the greater context, Noah was the only one in his world that was. But even still, he wasn't sinless. Right on the other side of the flood. I mean, the the water's probably still damp, and Noah immediately falls back into sin. That shows us he's not the promised seed of the woman that we've been waiting for. Yes, Noah did bring deliverance and rest for a time, but there was a need for a future deliverer. We still are waiting for, or well, we are not, but they are still waiting for someone to come who will be righteous and blameless perfectly and unfailingly. And when Jesus does come, he doesn't only walk with God, but he is God. When we talk about the mercy of God in saving Noah, how much greater is his mercy in sending his son? Jesus is the one who would save us all. In the flood, one family is saved, but in Christ, the doors of the ark are open wide that all would come in. This is great joy. The invitation extends far and wide. Any any who would come to Christ can find safety and rest on that ark. Last, Christians, I want us to notice the significance of chapter 7, verse 16. It's the, the very, very last bit of that verse is beautiful. Noah has loaded up every animal. He's loaded up his family and himself. And it says that the Lord shut him in. 
The Lord sealed him in. I don't know how big the hole was in the side of the boat that let the elephants and the giraffes and whatever else get in the boat, but it was a big hole. Probably one that would have sprung leaks, except for the fact that it's the Lord that shut them in. Noah and his family, the animals, they're all safe on this boat. There's no risk that the winds will knock them off course, that the flood will consume the boat. There's no risk of shipwreck. Because the the Lord, the sovereign God, is overseeing this entire process. He is in control every step of the way. Friends, our, our salvation is just like this. When we trust in Christ, when we're born again, we are promised rest. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John 10, Jesus says, No one who belongs to God will be snatched out of the Father's hand. Just as safe and secure as Noah was, we too are secure in our salvation. Because the Lord is the one who shut in Noah, because the Lord is the one who seals us, that's why we can sing songs like He will hold us fast. Songs like this one, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be Thou our guide while life shall last in our eternal home. As we've looked at the story, we've seen the spiraling descent into sin. We've seen the unique faithfulness of Noah. And we've seen both the judgment and the mercy of God. Let's just take a minute. We'll reflect on these things and pray, consider these things, and I will pray for us in just a moment.